adventurers, this is Musecast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your co-host, Emmy, And I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura. And we are here from the very beginning of 2017, so it's really great to be kicking off the new year with the conclusion of our overview of the various civilizations of Hydaelyn. We've taken you through all the different city-states of the Eorzean Alliance, but there's one more place that we'd like to talk about for now, and that is the largest single nation and the greatest military power on Hydaelyn, at least in terms of numbers. Who is that? It's Garlemald, the Garlean Empire. Ooh. Yeah, Garlemald has been a big bad of the series ever since the beginning. And as Stormblood approaches, it seems like... We may end up seeing a lot more of them, so we wanted to talk a little bit about Garlemald. Yeah, they definitely haven't been sitting idle, even though they're not currently actively invading Eorzea anymore. But a lot of things have happened, Legatuses have come and gone, and Garlemald has undergone change. So they are not an enemy that is idly sitting by. So we have reason to be wary of them, but also reason to understand them. Yeah. Actually, with Garlemald, we get a good amount of information from them, both from people who used to live in Garlemald, even a little bit from people who currently live in Garlemald, and for people who roleplay as characters who maybe were Garlean, are Garlean, it opens up a good amount of freedom for people to roleplay for them, if you can work it into the lore of the world of Eorzea. Yeah, definitely. I think that our intention with going over the nations of Eorzea was to give everybody the basic background info that they would need to develop a character from that region. That's why we went over a lot of the society and government structures. But it's also very possible to develop a character that is Garlean, and I think a lot of people have done some really interesting things with it. Yeah, I think so too. So like with the other city-states, what we are going to be doing is begin with the society and then maybe get into some of the key figures who happen to live in the Garlean Empire. Yeah, there's a lot to learn. It's not just a monolithic evil empire. They have a history, how they got here, why they got there. And there's different strata of the society, even though it's largely based around the military. And it's also got a lot of inspirations we can see from ancient Rome, both being an empire, being very military dominated. And a lot of the terms and names that are used are straight up from Latin. Yeah, that's very true. Like with Roman Empire, it's it's very much centered around the military, and people who have high military rank are the people who end up becoming very respected and really are the upper class in the society. There is even a formally regimented system of titles that applies to all citizens, but the only ranks really worth anything, and definitely the highest ranks, belong to the military, with the exception of the royal family. It's kind of a shame because even if you end up serving in the military after your land gets annexed in, and you serve for 20 years in the military, you still can only climb so high in the social strata. Yeah, there is actually a ceiling at which anyone who is not native Garlean or ethnic Garlean, there's only so high that they can reach. There's essentially a ceiling. And we learn this in A Realm Reborn, because one of the officers that works for Gaius von Belsar, retired in Sass Arvina, he's the guy in Cape Westwind that we all beat up in like 10 seconds now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You might have noticed that he is a Rugadin. 
under all that armor. The lore book tells us that he is actually from a territory that Garlemald annexed. However, he got totally on board with the Garlean Empire, joined the military, but the lore book also confirms that the position he holds is the highest that is attainable by a non-ethnic Garlean. So you kind of wonder, could he have been a legatus? If this were pure meritocracy, which it really isn't, there is a high level of meritocracy because anybody can join, but if this were a true meritocracy, how far would his talent actually have taken him? At the same time, he's very, very devoted to Gaius. He was able to do a lot for Gaius, working for him, and was rather instrumental to that effort before he came to an untimely demise by the hands of the Warrior of Light. Such a shame. In only, <laughs> in only like 20 seconds, he was taken down by the Warriors of Light. <laughs> well, the first time we did it, it was not quite that fast. <laughs> yeah, but nowadays, I mean, he just gets beaten up so, so quickly. Yeah. And for those of you that have access to the lore book, you can actually find the full list of regimented titles in Garlemald, and you can see that the top echelons all belong to the military and the royal family, with regular citizens like merchants, civil servants, and people like that at the very bottom. So if you are developing a character with a Garlean background, that's one thing that you're going to want to carefully consider. What was their rank in the Garlean hierarchy? Because that determines quite a lot about their life. And Garlemald itself is, I suppose, quite large considering all the territories that it's annexed, but at some point in time, I mean, they were not always as as massive of uh, an empire as they are now. This is very true. Yeah, at one point, the Republic was located in a very, very harsh, very cold climate. Yeah, the very, very north of Ilsebard. Yeah, and over in that location, I mean, you know, it's very cold, it's hard to grow food, and so you couldn't have a lot of people living there. And... It got so, it was just so brutal that they started having to burn the substance that was abundant in that place called ceruleum. They used to burn it for warmth, but over time it was discovered that they could use the ceruleum in order to power an engine. Yes, you can think of ceruleum essentially like gasoline. And you can think of this sort of technological revolution, industrial revolution that we went through like the petroleum-powered engine. Yep, and after that engine was developed, boy, did they expand. They were able to create Magitech machinery for military purposes. And because of that, even though their magical capability was definitely not as advanced, if really at all advanced at that point, compared to the people in the Eorzean city-states, this technological prowess ended up allowing them to expand and to conquer these lands that were a whole lot more suitable for people to actually live. <laughs> yeah. And another reason why this is very similar to the Industrial Revolution that happened in our world in Europe in the 1800s is because cerulean power replaced steam power. At first, cerulean was basically used as an industrial technology. And who was the first person to propose using these machinery for military purposes. It was a guy who was then known as Solus Galvis, who used the fame and prestige gained by instigating this huge revolution in military power to eventually 
declare himself the emperor and become Solus Selskaldus. And that's how you ended up getting the beginnings of this whole ranking system. I don't think we ended up discussing this earlier in the episode, but when you have a rank, your title is placed in between your first name and your last name. And so it was this sort of change, even with the naming, that the nation of Garlemald went from what used to be a republic with the senate that sort of controlled everything, to the Garlean Empire, which was more of a military-dominated governmental structure, and the senate took on more of an advisory role. Yeah, they essentially became an empire by being imperialist, by using this Magitech weaponry to just straight up go out and invade all their neighbors. <laughs> Woohoo! To be fair, though, I'm sure that for the Garleans, who were so used to being relegated to these lands that were not very nice, not very great to live in, they must have felt at the time that by invading all these lands and annexing the territory, they were sort of getting what they deserved. They were getting, in some ways, revenge for all the injustices that had been committed from people who wouldn't trade with them, and for the magic users who kind of kept them where they had been before. Yeah, yeah. You can really think about it from a devil's advocate perspective. Yeah, it seems to us that they were mercilessly subjugating these people and taking them from their rightful homelands. But to those early citizens of the Garlean Empire, this probably felt like justice and revenge. And I'm sure for the everyday citizen, like, they would have been very happy to be able to move somewhere else. Yeah, to finally have the resources they needed. Mm -hmm. To possibly move to someplace a little bit warmer. <laughs> yeah, to actually grow their population. And interestingly, through these invasions, the people living in those lands were absorbed into the Garlean Empire and largely forced to join the military. So in the game, the average run-of-the-mill Garlean soldier mobs that we see, you'll notice, are actually from many different races. You know, there's plenty of Hur and Elizin and Brugadin and Lalafell Garlean soldiers, and these are people that originate from those conquered lands. They're not native Garlean, but they were conscripted into the army. And probably for, for your average kind of low-level infantry type positions, because of their lower status and need to serve in the military for 20 years just to get citizenship, while they're technically being given an opportunity to quote-unquote move up in life, they also have a high chance of dying before that happens because they're kind of being put in these cannon fodder type positions. Well, not only is that true, but I can see it as being beneficial for for Garlemald. It sort of enables them to have this steamroller effect where you have people who are being enlisted in the military, and they are then allowing the Garleans to expand further. Yeah. And the other interesting thing is that because the conscripts are not native Garlean, they can use magic. So the Empire is still able to use magic users in its army. Definitely a force to be reckoned with, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And it's sad to think that that's their greatest chance of success in life, <laughs> is just mm -hmm. becoming a random open-world mob, but that's the way it is. Becoming, <laughs> becoming soldier number 12. <laughs> yeah, to become a mark in your hunting log. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another interesting thing that comes about due to their expansion into all these new lands is that they start to uncover Alligan relics. Because remember, Alig basically took over the entire planet and held a much larger territory than Garlemald holds now. So they took these relics, tried to reverse engineer them, tried to understand how they worked, and if they were able to crack it, incorporated that technology into their military. The 
biggest example of this is the Ultima weapon. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into characters and talk about a certain someone whose specialty is reviving elegant relics. So we can see that there is definitely a focus on engineering. And a lot of that is because, you know, the Garleans really don't have the ability to channel ether if you're a native Garlean. And as a result of this, religion really isn't a huge part of Garlean society, if really at all. In fact, it's banned. Yeah. <laughs> so Garlemald, for that reason, just looks down upon the primals. Even though they do have this destructive force, because of that, it's dangerous. And not only that, but they are summoned forth from prayer of different people based on these idealistic things, which may or may not actually exist. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, they never developed a connection to the spiritual or the supernatural, and they look down on the people that do, like those pesky Eorzeans. Man, those darn Eorzeans. <laughs> Shakes fist. On the other hand, though, uh, the Garleans do have a third eye, which is something that is on their foreheads. And what it does is, well, what we know about it is it grants them superior spatial recognition. Now, what exactly that means? I'm not exactly sure. And as a result, I think a lot of role players who play Garleans interpret that third eye a little bit differently from the next. Yeah, definitely. For things like maybe action roleplay or fight sequences, it's up for interpretation as to what that means. But it's something interesting to know about Garleans. Yeah, they do have that advantage. And however you want to interpret this is fine. The only advice we would give is to be consistent. And don't make it into too big of a superpower because that's just boring. Yeah, they're going to have advantages and they're going to have disadvantages to it because of this superior spatial recognition and awareness. Mm -hmm. For example, you could say that in hand-to-hand -hand combat, things like peripheral vision are actually really useful. And another thing to keep in mind if you're doing something action-based, we do have to note that there is a loophole, you could say, revealed in the lore book that, quote-unquote, a few Garleans have the ability to channel ether. That said, it's very limited as to what they can do. So they can pretty much do very simple spells, maybe something like Cure, um, but you aren't really going to see them dish out any extremely strong attacks so not really like astral fires or <laughs> Fire I, I can't imagine them using like medica 2 or something like yeah. that you could say that their mana pool is very low or that the effectiveness of the spells would be very low but i guess some people do have the ability to use magic yeah i would say our suggestion for using this is think very carefully if you want to make a garlean character a magic user we don't want this loophole to end up making a character that is unbeatable <laughs> in a fight sequence. Oh, goodness. <laughs> really, really, that's my advice with, like, any kind of character. Please don't make your character unbeatable. It gets very frustrating. Yeah. So, as the story has progressed, we've gotten to know quite a few Garlean characters, as well as former Garlean characters. For example, in our Ishgard episode, we included Lukia. Yeah, she was somebody who ended up defecting from the Empire as a result of her attempted espionage. But there are also some characters from Garlemald that we didn't really talk a whole lot about who are extremely important to really combating primals and, and what the Warrior of Light does. 
on the Eorzean side. Yeah. The one who comes to mind the most is Sid. Sid Garland, or formerly Sid Nan Garland. He was a very good engineer, very skilled, uh, but unfortunately Sid didn't really have the heart for war like the Empire focuses on, and um, to see technology used as really war machines. Yeah, I think of it like he was just too good of a person, too kind-hearted and soft-hearted. He just couldn't do it, and yeah. so he escaped. Yeah, he would have preferred to see technology used to improve people's lives, not just to subjugate them. Funnily enough, he is a native-born Garlean, but when he escaped, he ended up teaming up with the people who ended up becoming key members to the Ironworks. Those, of course, being Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse, which all of them were people who initially were Garleans through annexation, and they ended up escaping as well. Yeah, the lore book actually does some really nice development of those characters. And we get to know Biggs and Wedge somewhat in the story, but we don't see a lot of Jessie. And I think that she's actually quite interesting, despite being kind of little known. First of all, when after the Calamity, Sid went missing, she was the one who took over the Ironworks and kept it running all this time. She's also the one who essentially runs the place when Sid is off, helping the Alliance, helping the Warrior of Light. <laughs> you know, like, someone's got to manage the day-to-day -day of this business. And that's her? Yeah. It's kind of a shame that you don't really see her in any of the main scenario or anything like that. Yeah, you see her basically briefly around, like, early 2.1, 2.2. But I would like to see more of her, possibly. It would be nice to see more of her. Yeah. And one of the reasons why Sid is so involved with the Alliance and the Scions is because... He's essentially the only person in Eorzea with proper, thorough, deep knowledge of Magitek. By acting as a consultant to the Alliance, by helping out the Scions, even if it's just flying his airship to various places. <laughs> um, but he also uses his technological know-how to solve various problems, like getting us to Garuda, getting us to Azizla. And as the only person in Eorzea with deep knowledge of Magitek, he's giving us an advantage over the Empire that... We wouldn't have otherwise. You know, this technology is totally foreign to Aerzia, yet it's instrumental to everything Garlemalt does. Yeah, and even with advancements in Garland technology, at least they have that foundation that Sid knows of to try and figure that out. So whatever comes in the future, I mean, you know, I'm glad we have Sid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's been important since 1.0. He was there throughout the story, helping everyone out in much the same way he does now. But in the changeover from 1.0 to 2.0, instead of having him just straight up be reintroduced, like, oh, just go find him at the Ironworks, they chose to have him go missing and have amnesia. So we essentially have to find him in this random church in Eastern Thanalan. He has to slowly regain his memories. And we almost kind of find him by chance. We've also met Biggs and Wedge at this point, and they talk about how much they miss him. But then it's actually Alphano who figures out who he really is, and then comes barging into the church and is like, you're Sid Nan Garland, and you need to come right now and start helping us again. <laughs> and Sid's just like, what? What? <laughs> huh? <laughs> so it takes a while for him to really remember everything that had happened. Yeah, I always thought that Alphano was, like, a little arrogant at this point. 
But maybe a swift kick in the pants is what he needed to start to regain his memories and start taking chances again. So I thought this was a pretty interesting way of reintroducing an important 1.0 character in a somewhat unconventional way. Yeah, as somebody who ended up beginning in 2.0 with very little knowledge of 1.0, I think it was a good way of introducing him back and sort of not only showing some seemingly development, I suppose, or some awakening in Sid, but also to introduce everything that had happened in 1.0 that somebody like me really didn't know about. So Sid was definitely a good character to, uh, to do that with. That said, Sid really can't be mentioned without talking about his arch another enemy guy in here. <laughs> yeah, his rival. Uh, somebody who is always, always trying to outdo him. Yeah. Even back when they were young. That's Nero. Yes, Nero Tolskeva, also my favorite Garlean, so you might get a little bit of the gushing in my voice. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always been very funny because I, I've always seen Nero as just second best to Sid, and in some ways Nero has seen himself as second best to Sid as well. They studied together in Garlemald's Magitic Academy when they were young, and Sid was... Sid was really raised from birth to be somebody in charge of Garlemald's Magitech industry. So he ended up having the sort of streamlined path to learn about this sort of thing. Yeah, he had a lot of advantages. Exactly. Whereas Nero, we learn from the lore book that part of this sort of inferiority complex and chip on his shoulder comes from the fact that he grew up in a rural area and had no resources at his disposal other than just the natural talent that he used to start just fixing up machinery. This was enough to get him into the academy, which is not easy to get into. So he probably feels that he worked harder and that he came farther and that he didn't do it with these privileges that Sid has, yet Sid still ends up on top. So he feels like he deserves the top spot because he got so far on his own talent and Sid just didn't need to come that far in the first place. And... After Sid defects, Nero doesn't stay with the Magitech Academy as a researcher, but goes into the military. One could say maybe the reason why he went into the military was because, well, maybe I can't be as good as Sid ever was on this, but I can still be great this way. Yeah, he was doing something that Sid never would. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was always his specialty and his knack to reverse engineer elegant technology from relics and by joining the military he would also get access to the empire's collection of relics and be able to indulge his fascination his sort of like super nerdy hobby <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and that's how he ends up restoring the ultima weapon and i didn't quite realize this until like now on my third main scenario playthrough but everything that nero is doing as far as measuring the etheric readings of primals is in preparation for this. When he is behind you measuring Ifrit, Titan, and Garuda, it's because he needs to understand how powerful they are so that he can be sure that Ultima can essentially go and eat them and defeat them, right? Mm -hmm. If they're too strong, then there's the end of your weapon. Yeah. But at the same time, like, if they're weak, then what's the point? Exactly. He seems to be sort of disappointed in the readings from Ifrit, but then he goes to see Titan and he says something like, oh, this is what I was looking for. And I just didn't realize that the first two times. So I think 
One big reason I like Nero a lot is because deep down, he's just a giant nerd. You know, he's just a giant engineering nerd and like possibly history nerd with this elegant stuff that he probably totally fanboys over, yet he's stuck in this eternal cycle to beat Sid, trying super hard in the military, trying to one-up him in all these ways, restoring these weapons, trying to get the praise that he feels he deserves. And like in a different world, would he really be doing those things? Like is, is his real love just like fixing up machinery and looking at old relics? You know, I could just totally see him just like fanboying over this stuff. And even though this eternal rivalry that they have, Sid and Nero from school, it does end up pushing both of them to be better. Like they're eternally in competition, so they can't sit back and rest. They always have to be fighting and learning and working to get better. But because for Nero comes from this place of deep insecurity, he just ends up kind of obsessed and having this deep, deep hatred for Sid that is probably not exactly healthy in the long run. Yeah, and I don't think it's really reciprocated on Sid's end either. The thing is that Nero has no logical reason to hate Sid. Yeah. But essentially, he's just jealous of all the renown and praise that Sid gets that he thinks he's more deserving of. Do either of them realize that Nero is just jealous? There's a lot to think about there. I think that I would really love to know more about their younger days and like their past. That would certainly be very interesting, and all of you role players out there have given me a little bit of what might have been back then, so I really enjoy that. So, back at the end of 2.0, when we go storm the Praetorium, defeat the Ultima Weapon, and defeat Gaius, well, he kind of dies, not because we kill him, but because the whole thing explodes, <laughs> we fight Nero, but he escapes. And because the 14th Legion is essentially in shambles, all of the officers are dead. Instead of going back to the Legion, he just kind of escapes. I guess people just assume that he's dead, and he wanders around Eorzea up until it's time for the Crystal Tower. At this point, he's essentially following his own ambition, his own agenda, which is still not clear, but he seems to have been fascinated by the Crystal Tower because it was a powerful source of energy, because it was originally like this enormous solar cell and took in enough power to power all of the surrounding region of Alec. But whilst kind of involving himself with all of us and our efforts to seal off the tower and sort of being in this position of like half villain, half ally. Well, first of all, we get some really, <laughs> some really nice banter between him and Sid. They're like fighting in the background and stuff, but he becomes a little bit less villainous, essentially. He goes through some character development. He ends up defending our two clone friends, Une and Doga, which you could say for selfish reasons, but whatever those reasons are, he ends up, however briefly, on the same side as us. He doesn't want the Void and the Void Pack created by Zandi to eat the world any more than we do. Well, of course not. <laughs> yeah. So he became much more fleshed out there, and it showed that when he wants to, he can be a decent person. But at the same time, he got into this mess because he was trying to use the Crystal Tower. And he still puts up a hard front like, oh, I'm just doing this for my own reasons. But we don't even really know what his own reasons are. That's true. He seems to want some kind of power. But how far do his ambitions go? Yeah. And that does bring up a couple of questions about what might happen in like future patches and things like that. Because... 
Crystal Tower itself, that storyline isn't really part of the main scenario. And we see him at the end of, which patch was it? Was it 3.4, I believe? Yeah, 3.4. We see him at the end of 3.4 and we learn that he has the ability to bring back the Omega weapon, which of course is going to appear in Stormblood as the endgame raid, I believe, over there. We don't know if it's going to be him who can bring it back, but it does bring up a point. Is he back? Maybe to being as two-dimensional as he was previous to Crystal Tower? Yeah. I mean, in those clips we see of him, that could have easily happened right after the Praetorium. It doesn't seem to take into account however he actually changed during Crystal Tower. And are they doing that because Crystal Tower isn't required and there are going to be people that get up to 3.55 and Stormblood never having played it? Well, they do something like what they did with, with Alize. If you had completed Coil of Bahamut, then... She would say one thing, and if you didn't, then she'd just completely skip it or maybe say another thing. Yeah, it's almost like they're trying to toss away whatever character development happened to him. I think the folks that we've talked to in the community are a little wary and disappointed at this, because it did do a lot to flesh out his character, and it just seems silly to to forget about that. I'm sure there will be a little bit of forked dialogue, but in their defense, Crystal Sour was still pretty short. And he was clearly still going after his own agenda. So I don't think that that storyline was enough to change him that deeply and permanently. So he could have easily gone through that and still gone and regressed back to his old kind of power mongering ways. Mm -hmm. But he is featured prominently in the 3.5 trailer, which we know is going to happen in two parts. I don't know if this counts as a spoiler, but in 3.5, he does not yet appear yet. It's been confirmed that that trailer encompasses both 3.5 and 3.55. So that pretty much guarantees that he is going to be in the patch 3.55 storyline released in March. What exactly he does, we don't know yet. Yeah, we can only speculate from what we've seen in the trailer. As someone that likes him a lot, I'm pretty excited. Now there's another Carlean who I think several people, including our our good friend Ethis Asher, found a lot more fleshed out and developed than maybe Nero might end up being. Yeah. And that is Gaius yeah. Van Belzar. He has a lot of fans still, even though he has not been with us since the end of 2.0. He was, however, pretty prominent in 1.0 as well. Yeah. What exactly did Ethis have to say about uh, Gaius? Hmm. Remember that from the interview? Why don't we roll the clip? All right, let's do it. Yeah, Gaius, Gaius is absolutely my favorite character, and um, I think it's because he's such a he's such a unique and interesting villain. All of that stuff that we got about 2.0, about um, you know our our gods are no different from Primals; they're just icons, and uh, you know, and he's trying to save the realm. And when we look back at 1.0 and the fact that he undermines uh, Meteor, and like. You know, the whole realm would have been destroyed if he wasn't leaking information to us in 1.0, um, because he doesn't. You know, he doesn't want. Uh, he doesn't want to conquer a barren land. It's not. He's not power for power's sake. Uh, he's a pragmatist. He wants to save people. He's got an idea. You know, he's an idealist. I just said he's a pragmatist, and then I said he's an idealist. <laughs> what? Uh, you know what? I, I let's 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 not go into that. I'm, I I don't think those two are necessarily mutually exclusive. I'm not going to go into that right now. But um, he's not he's not a typical villain. Well, he was far more complicated than I think any other character in the game before Heaven's Ward. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like he's just he's great. Everyone knows he's great. All right, there you have it. 
Thank you, Ethis of the Past. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a succinct summary of why this character has become and stayed so popular. And even though I was not a 1.0 player, I did make an effort to watch a lot of the cutscenes from then. I definitely think that not only is he a rather interesting villain, in some ways, he was more interesting in 1.0. Because he had a foil, essentially, in the other legatus of the 7th Legion, Nail Van Dardis. And as we all know, Nail was essentially batshit crazy <laughs> because of being tempered by Dalamud and Muhammad. So next to Nail, Gaius looks downright reasonable and smart, <laughs> even though he is still a devoted follower of the Empire and that he believes that Might is right and that he hates the Primals. He kind of disdains the Alliance. He goes so far as to leak us information. At least he doesn't want to destroy everything in the process. Yeah. Like Ethis was saying, Eorzea might have been wiped out in this calamity that Nail was trying to bring about if it weren't for his intervention. And that's how everyone ends up at Cartano, trying to hold back the 7th Legion, and interestingly, kind of getting beat up <laughs> in the process, but... That's another tangent they go off in the lore book about the details of everything that happened at Cartanel. And it also contains a lot of interesting info about Nail, if you do get a chance to read it. Yeah, it was on our website. We posted a little bit of information about Nail, so if you want to go check that out, you can. For sure. So that's why I think people have become really fascinated with Gaius. And that about wraps up our episode on the Garlean Empire. Yeah, it might seem a little bit short, but we're actually in the process of trying to cut down our uh, episode content. If only for the reason that you've seen in the past, like, city-states um, episodes, we tend to go on and on and on yeah. and on and on <laughs> if, you, if we get the chance. So we have, as a result, a lot of notes for this episode that we wanted to put in, but because we want to limit our episodes to around, like, 45 minutes to an hour each, uh, we have a whole bunch of notes there that we really want to talk about. And what we what we do have is a Patreon page where you can donate for, like, five bucks a month, you can get all of the notes and all of the stuff that we wanted to talk about, but we haven't had a chance to talk about. And we really, 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 <laughs> really want to talk yeah. about it. Yeah. If you join our Patreon, donating $5 a month or more, you'll get access to basically the director's cut. Our full notes. Our extremely lengthy episodes, if you were to hook them on to yeah. the episodes proper. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, it's not really time to go into all the places you can find us online. So instead, we're going to do what we do almost every episode, where every episode we give an account of things that have happened in games, something interesting and fun, can be in character, can be out of character, but just something that happened to us within the past, well, I guess, time that we created the last episode. The last episode. And it's actually been a while. It's been a long while. <laughs> it's a new year. Yeah. There's a new patch. <laughs> Back in 2016, we created an episode. So so it can be in character, it can be out of character, just because we love playing Final Fantasy XIV. Yep. Can confirm. Yeah. So something new that I have taken up in between gaming is trying out streaming. Mm -hmm. Now... Streaming is something that's very popular in all kinds of games, but definitely also in FF14. However, I've been thinking a lot about how MuseCast 14 could use streaming, because we have a very specific niche and voice that we want to use and perspective that we want to show. So it's not in our best interest to 
lose focus from our actual goal and our unique perspective and do something like rating because you can see plenty of people rating that are much better than me certainly <laughs> and it's like as much as i enjoy rating if we were to do something under the musecast 14 name it really wouldn't go with what what our goals of the show are yeah our goal is always to promote encourage and teach about roleplay in ff14 to tell you everything roleplay in the world of eorzea yeah but one thing that I came up with came from the idea that role players are especially fascinated with and devoted to the story and lore. And since role players also, <laughs> like myself, tend to have a lot of alts because you have many different characters you want to create, I have been replaying the main scenario on each of these characters, and I almost want to make it a goal to get all of them caught up before 4.0, but I don't know how that's going to go. <laughs> but one, one at a time. So I thought that if I'm replaying the story and I'm having all these thoughts, you know, from this new perspective, looking at the story again a second and third time, wouldn't it be interesting if I shared that with people? So I've started to live stream on Twitch my main scenario playthroughs. And ever since I got a decent enough headset that you could actually hear me, I've also added on top of that my own commentary and my own thoughts as I do these replays. So. It's almost like a director's commentary. I'm not just straight up showing you the dialogue, even though I do take my time, talk to all the NPCs, I go into the Rising Stones every time, you know, the dialogue changes, because that's something a lot of people miss. That's they don't so re true. realize how often the dialogue there changes. Like if you talk to all the Scions in there and all the NPCs in there, rather than just going into the, uh, what's it called? Yeah, like Minfilia's office. Yeah, rather than going into the office and uh, getting the next quest... There are a lot of changes with that dialogue. Yeah, you'll see not only the signs that are main characters, but like the side characters. There are even side storylines that go on between these side yeah. NPCs that are interesting to watch. Yeah, and that's something that a lot of people miss. I definitely think that my first playthrough was too rushed, and even some of my second playthrough. So I've started doing something called Storytime Stream, and I've settled so far on doing it on Sunday evenings at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Try not to overlap with any other big streams that are happening. And so far, I've been playing with my alt on Gilgamesh, who is named appropriately Remix Sakura, and going through 2.1 onwards. Uh, I'm currently on 2.4, going to be continuing this weekend as well, once a week. And I kind of want to go one at a time. You know, I'll get her caught up, and then maybe I'll go back to the other characters. <laughs> I think the 2.x series is really nice to do. I'm a little bit I'm a little bit hesitant to do stuff before 2.1 because it can drag on. <laughs> but I want to give people a sort of value that they can't get just by replaying cutscenes in the inn. Because you really do miss a lot. It can serve as a good basic refresher, but you're not going to get the in-between dialogue. And you're not even going to get all the cutscenes. What a lot of people don't realize about cutscenes, when they say things like skip the cutscenes, like go to the in-room, all of the cutscenes are not included in the in-room. You will miss some forever if you don't watch them the first time. For example, the Praetorium, everyone's always like, oh my god, skip it, skip it, skip it. There are several that you cannot replay in the in-room. And the fact that so many players are rushing through new people and not letting them watch the stupid cutscenes is such a tragedy, I think, because this is like the end of the game. You feel like you're beating the game. Yeah, the game goes on, but like this is huge. And if you miss it, I mean, you could see it again, but then you have to go and get another character, level him up to level 50, get him into the Praetorium again, and pray to God that the people don't kick you. 
because yeah. you're watching a cutscene. Yeah, what actually happened when I replayed this with Remix is that I told everybody at the beginning, look, I'm new, you're getting a bonus in exchange, you're going to be, can you please be patient with me? And they didn't. I fought almost none of the battles because they beat them so fast. And even though I was going as slow as I possibly could, I missed a few cutscenes that I had remembered watching the first time. Like there's this whole dialogue where Gaius goes on about how ARZ is a bunch of wimps and that's not in the in-room and I didn't get to watch it. Even though I had remembered, like, wait, I think something's missing here. And I think that's such a travesty. At least by streaming it, you'll be able to get people who, who will watch it. Maybe for the first time. Yeah. I'm trying to take things slow, get as much detail as I can, talk to any relevant NPCs, go back to the Rising Stones frequently, and give people that experience that maybe they didn't get to have the first time. Because as a role player, you feel like you're a real person having these experiences. And that's just kind of one of the things we do. We take it slow and we savor every bit of the story. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I've enjoyed a lot. Not only doing these playthroughs and giving my commentary, but learning how to perform on the mic, on camera, doing it live. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a whole lot of fun. Yeah, and I do commend streamers that have a lot of talent on camera and on the mic and are always doing it live. It's a challenge. So I'm, I'm surprised as... As somebody who would never, ever, ever want to appear on camera, like, you know, <laughs> kudos to you for being able to do it. All right. <laughs> yeah. Now, something that I'd like to talk about that I've been doing for the past couple months, I guess, would best be preceded by uh, the story of, have you heard of the production that they had on Diabolos of I Want to Be Your Canary? Yeah, that was a big, big hit. It was, yeah. They have a volunteer group called A Stage Reborn, and it's a bunch of people who get together and they put on these amazingly produced productions. And what they did when they decided to come out with this show was there were so many people that they decided to stream it, of course, so that people who were not on the server would be able to see it as well. What we've been doing on the Balmung server is similar to that, I guess you could say. Something that I like doing in my free time is making a lot of dance macros. Um, you use the emotes and time them up to music to kind of make this this dance. So it's not just using something like slash dance or slash thav dance, but you use those in addition to things like slash disappointed or slash happy, things like that. And on uh, Belmong, what we've done is we created a K-pop group called Beat Breakers Brigade. That's a hard one to say. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so 3B is what we've shortened it to. And we take K-pop songs and, in the case of this first performance, some J-pop and things like that, and we create dance macros. And so over the past couple of months, we'd been putting together like a group routine and several solo routines as well. And we just had yesterday our debut performance over in the Goblet. And I'm very pleased to say that that was a success. Uh, we had probably around 40 people attending live. And we had a couple of streamers as well. And I really, I wish I knew how many people were there as, as well, but I don't. But anyways, it was a great success. And it was, it was a whole lot of fun getting together with people once a week and doing practices in character as well. So each of the performers had different personalities and it was interesting getting to know them. And like in one case, my character couldn't understand anything that one of the characters said. 
uh, just because of her accent. And it was it was just lovely to to get everybody together and to get into this group feel like an actual idol group sort of would have to as well. That sounds awesome. I didn't know that there was a behind the scenes RP component to it, too. Yeah, I mean, there doesn't always have to be. But in this case, there was. And I think it complemented that really well. Yeah. As someone who has been the camera person for Scoot Patoot many times on Gilgamesh. i so many macros with <laughs> yeah. Scoot, too. Yeah, I can say that Emmy has definitely a talent for making dance macros and giving them the right timing and using the right emotes and even sometimes incorporating battle effects for that extra bit of flesh. Yeah. One of the performances that I did actually did have that, but then I threw in like... You know the magic prisms that come from uh, yeah. Palace of the Dead and what have you? Yeah, I used that in like wardrobe changes and everything. It was it was just a whole lot of fun to watch. And getting to see everybody else's completed performances and their uh, types of music that they would choose for their different characters. I loved the variety. I guess that's the end of my story. So this concludes today's episode of Musecast 14. Thank you for joining us again in 2017. Yes, thank you. And now that we've wrapped up with Garlemald, we've covered almost all of the places where role players typically have their characters' origins. Not everywhere. We would really like to talk about El Amigo. We would really like to talk about Doma. But there's not quite enough just yet to make them into full episodes. However... But we do want to make them eventually, and I think it would be really great to go into El Amigo and Doma once, especially for El Amigo, once we get to really explore them firsthand. So maybe after Stormblood comes out? Maybe. But for now, this concludes our little segment on city-states and our episode of MuseCast 14. Be sure to subscribe, share, and follow us on all of our social media. We have, of course, our MuseCast 14 website at www.musecast14.com. XIV. Yes. <laughs> um, you can find us or rather listen to us, on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play. Uh, we also have a Facebook where you can find us at MuseCast14, same thing, MuseCastXIV, or follow us on Twitter at MuseCastXIV. And now we have Twitch, right? Yes, we do. What's the URL for that one? It's twitch.tv slash MuseCastXIV. No way. Same thing everywhere. No way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you like what you heard... Uh, please consider donating to us. We have a PayPal link if you just want to do like a one-time donation. Or if you want to give to us every month, get access to episodes before they come out. And as we said previously in the episode, a lot of the content that we wanted to talk about but just didn't have the time to uh, really cover in our usual episodes, please consider donating to our Patreon. Yep. You can donate $1 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, or $20. And each tier gets you access to more and more stuff. So you can really get the full experience while also supporting us and helping to pay the bills. And we have bills to pay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in our next group of episodes, like we said, we aren't going to be talking about city-states, but we have something that I've really wanted to talk about for a while. And that's the question of NPC role-playing and god modding in general. For those who don't really know what god modding is, god modding is something that we talked about in this episode where people might end up making their characters perhaps a little bit too strong. And so we want to talk about maybe what defines that, if there's even a way to 
to define that. And there's a lot to say. So if you are interested in that, please stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. We've talked a lot about lore stuff, story stuff, NPC characters, and you may be wondering why we don't talk more about the mechanics of roleplay. Well, now we are. Yeah, the only reason why we haven't previously is we wanted to give everybody the basics that it would take to develop a character in various regions. And to be honest, it just took longer than expected because we had more than expected to say. Yep. <laughs> so we will begin to talk about more RP-specific things and going more in-depth in the process, the different components, and talking about it in a way that will both be helpful to experienced role players or new role players as well. So stay tuned, as Emmy said. Yep. And until then, see you next time. Take care, adventurers. <laughs> <laughs>